Ecclesiastes, if you have your Bible or your Bible on your device this morning, go to Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to end up there in a few minutes. We'll make a short stop somewhere else, but we're going to really dig into um, the beginning part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If, you're, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, I think you've been missing out on one of the Bible's treasures, this book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling this series Fuel because in this book, Solomon... Uh, or some think a, a, a person inspired by Solomon. I'm just going to go with Solomon. Um, Solomon <laughs> systematically tests those places that people look to to find meaning. And the places he looks to, he says, are, quote, under the sun, a phrase he'll use over and over again. In other words, he won't appeal to God. He won't make a habit of appealing to spiritual things in this book. What he will do is focus his attention on things under the sun, right? Places people look to to fill their lives, to fuel their lives, to find meaning, to find joy, to find freedom. And so he talks about everything. He leaves no rock uh, unturned. He, he talks about um, building projects. He talks about um, finding meaning through pleasure. He had all, all kinds of money, so he was able to, spend, to buy anything that looked good to him. Um, he talks about um, the pursuits of good causes that people throw themselves behind. Solomon talks about relationships. Solomon talks about religion. Solomon talks about sex. Solomon talks about virtually anything that people look to even today to fill their lives with meaning, to see if there's something that they can form their life around. And he finds that these, these pursuits, these fuels under the sun are not sufficient, right? They're weak, um, they're very temporary, and, 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 and you need to know, and, and I've, I've pointed this out before, but just know this, Solomon was very uniquely able to undertake this, all right? You may think, well, I could try that too. Well, you could, but it would be a, a, very, a very scaled back version of what he, of what he tried, and, and people do try that, by the way. But, but he was uniquely qualified because he was super, super rich. I think it was one point, I can't remember exactly, but like $1.1 billion of gold came into his coffers every year. Um, we talked about how he had thousands and thousands of, of servants and slaves that worked. I mean, he, they, he had thousands and thousands of people building his palace. He built palaces for his wives. By the way, he had 700 wives. He also had a harem of 300 women. Um, he built a temple to God, which, which was famous and, 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 and incredible people came who weren't even Hebrews just to see the temple, just to, to see the majesty of this. He built temples to the gods of his foreign wives as well. He, built, he, he, he planted vineyards, orchards, forests, uh, huge kind of uh, civic work projects, water projects, things like that. So, so he really dove in um, <laughs> with, with both feet as he tested out the places people looked to for meaning. Now, <laughs> lest we think, um, when we think of, oftentimes we think of somebody who has the money and the time to have this sort of life of, of leisure to kind of pursue their interests and they don't have to punch in, you know, a time clock, um, maybe you're thinking this life of, of leisure, of celebrity, of money is rather like, you know, one of our celebrities nowadays. Um, he wasn't like that. With, with all due respect to our celebrities on TMZ or Entertainment Tonight, this guy was wise, okay? He was um, a philosopher. He was a scientist, 
Um, in fact, I do want to just share this with you quickly. First Kings chapter 4, just this description, I think gives you a good profile of what he was like intellectually. All right, it says in 1 Kings 4, 20, starting at 29, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. Verse 32, he composed some 3,000 proverbs, wrote 1,005 songs. He could speak with authority about all kinds of plants. He was a, uh, from the great cedar of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows in the cracks of a wall. He could also speak about animals, birds, small creatures, and fish. Kings from every nation sent their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. So he was intellectually a heavyweight. Um, and he is, and so all these resources that he has to conduct this experiment include um, his his brain power as well. So he's going to come into this with everything he's got. He could outspend anybody. Um, he could outpleasure anybody with his thousand women. He could outthink anybody in that day and time. So he is qualified to conduct this experiment. Uh, now, as he systematically tests these sources of meaning under the sun and rules them out, we are inevitably left looking for meaning above the sun, looking for meaning in the presence of God. And I think this is quite intentional and, and very indirect, very subtle in this book. But as he knocks the legs out from under all the places people look to for meaning, he leads us to one alternative, which is God, and he will actually kind of touch on that today as we work through the text. Um, what he finds up to this point, up to chapter 7, he finds that life under the sun is rather like running on a treadmill, okay? It, it, it is, you can pour yourself into this or that or the other thing, but it's kind of like running on a treadmill. If you have a treadmill, treadmills are great for exercise, great for staying in shape. They're not great as vehicles from getting from point A to point B. Not at all. I mean, you can, you can run for as long as you want. You can run for 20 minutes or you can run for two hours on your treadmill, but you are at exactly the same place you started. You can ramp the speed up to 10 miles an hour, 12 miles an hour. You can run your legs off on a treadmill, but you don't go anywhere. And Solomon says that's the way it is with things under the sun. You can pour yourself into them. You can get as much as X, Y, or Z as you can. You can grab a hold of, of the pleasure, of the money, of the fame, but you're not going to go anywhere without God, without God. So, chapter 7. I'm calling this the sobriety test. This is kind of Solomon's breathalyzer of the soul. He wants to look at a couple of places that people go where they end up kind of intoxicating themselves. They get drunk on certain things that cloud their vision, that muddy things up so that they can't see what's really important. Um, it reminds me of... One of the places we went in Brazil, um, it was a real treat because one of my ex-teammates, Deborah Reynolds, she ended up in Rio. She ended up going to culinary school, took several years. She graduated, did some studies in France, all this stuff. And anyway, now she has a job 
with a, with a very expensive Italian restaurant in Rio. In fact, her husband hadn't ever gone, but we were determined this trip to go. And so Isla and I split a, split a, a plate of pasta, which was like $27 for this plate of pasta. And uh, anyway, the water there is like $8 a glass for this bottle of water they have. So it, it's a really nice place, but you have to be careful, all right? And Deborah told us at this place, um, she, is the, she cooks the pasta. They have a person that makes the pasta. She cooks the pasta. And then they have the sous chef and the, all these other people. But anyway, she, she's telling us um, on Valentine's Day, um, this young man came into the restaurant. His girlfriend wanted to eat at Jero, which is the name of the restaurant. So he took her to Jero. He knew it was going to be kind of expensive. He borrowed his mom's credit card. So this guy and his girlfriend are at Jero on Valentine's Day. All right, they order, they, 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 they have a nice meal there. Um, his girlfriend picks out this wine that she thinks will be awesome and everything. And at the end of the meal, um, they get the bill. See where I'm going with this? Well, the bill was 16,000 hay ice, which is about $8,000. Like I said, this is a really nice place. And, and, and his... His, his girlfriend ordered the most expensive bottle of wine on the menu. And this place services, you know, Brazilian movie stars, um, soccer players for Hail Madrid that come over. I mean, this is for the, you know, and so he's there with this bill, and he's like, what? And you're like, don't they put the prices on this thing? Well, not necessarily on the wine list. I mean, and, and, and so he is, what do I do? Well, it has to be paid. I mean, you consumed the food. You consumed the wine. And so he has to go back to his mom, explain all of this. And then Deborah told me that, that his mom had to come up with an arrangement with the restaurant where she would pay two or 3,000 hay ice per month for several months to pay off this meal. Um, it's a good idea to know the price tag on what you're ordering, isn't it? Um, and you can know, I heard that story before I went, so when I got my glass of water, I was like, how much is this water, you know? I mean, <laughs> I'm perfectly willing to appear cheap. I mean, that's not a problem for me. Um, but you need to, and, and Solomon is going to, what he does is he exposes the hidden price tags of the places that people go to for me, the fuels that seem so awesome in the moment. But he says, think about where this is taking you. What is the end of this? Let's go to chapter 7, verse 1. He says, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. The day you die, better than the day you were born. This is essentially a commentary about cosmetics or character. Um, it, it's essentially about image or integrity. Um, Solomon says, you know, a lot of people live buying costly perfume or you name it. You know, they want to look good. They want to smell good. They want to make a good impression. They are essentially slaves to what other people will think or say. And so they will spend any amount to make a good impression, to put on a good show for people to be, to admire them. It could be an expensive 
haircut. It could be an expensive cologne. It could be an Armani suit. They want to look good. They want to impress. And there is a certain fatigue in always trying to impress other people. It is a tiring thing, this treadmill. If people, they, they reason, if people only knew the real me, I'd be in trouble. And so I have to work so hard to manage my facade, to manage my, my image so that people won't come to know how broken I really am on the inside. And Solomon doesn't say that costly perfume is a bad thing. I mean, he certainly had plenty of luxury items at his palace. Um, He doesn't say that hygiene is a bad thing or makeup is a bad thing or, or any of these things don't have value. What he says is a good reputation is better. Integrity is worth more. And he could very well be speaking to our culture, not to his culture thousands of years ago, about this trade that people make where they look to things other than integrity. They value appearances more than character. Then folks age, and as folks age, character becomes more and more important, and these other superficial things become less important. He continues with this sobriety check, verse 2. Better to spend, verse 2, better to spend your time at funerals. This has real shock value, this statement. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, but a fool thinks only about having a good time. Solomon was hardly a killjoy, right? This guy was hardly anti-party, anti-enjoyment. I mean, he did a really good job of entertaining himself and entertaining other people. Um, The question he raises here, is there more to life than than self-entertainment? Is there a bigger and better purpose than merely amusing myself? Most folks on planet Earth simply don't have the luxury of living according to this fuel. Okay, you with me? Most folks on the planet simply don't have the luxury of living for the purpose of entertaining themselves. We do. We do. I mean, we live in a time, we live in a place where there is enough wealth, where you likely have enough free time to think about entertaining yourself, pleasing yourself more than you think about virtually anything else. Solomon says there is danger here. There is danger in this. Entertainment um, as a god, entertainment as a fuel, entertainment as a reason for living has a high price tag. Um, It turns us into this focus on pleasing myself all of the time, serving my needs, serving my wants, turns me into a self-entertainment junkie. I become addicted to making myself happy, and I carry this with me wherever I go, even to church. I mean, the purpose of worship is, is, I mean, the way I evaluate worship is, is how well do I like the songs? How well do I like the preacher? I mean, how funny is that guy? How, was it comfortable? Was the air conditioning working well? Was the temperature right? I mean, a self-entertainment absorption addiction tends to lead me, even in the presence of God, to think about taking care 
of myself. It becomes not a pastime, but a full-time occupation. Solomon says that's dangerous. Um, a fool, he says, intoxicates themselves uh, themselves on leisure. A wise person is reflective. A wise person goes to a funeral and learns something, reflects on what matters in the end, on what life is all about. And so a wise person is very much at home or as at home at a funeral or a celebration of somebody's life as they are at a party, all right? Now, truth is you and I don't know how long we will live um, today could be my last day, all right? Some of us may not be back next week because death will claim us. Um, what we do know is we have this moment right now. And Solomon asks you and asks me to use this moment to consider what our life is about. What is What am I going to end up with from what I'm planting? Am I going to end up with character? Am I going to end up with a legacy that blesses other people? Or am I going to end up with a price tag that, that I never expected? All right, verse 5. Another sobriety test is criticism. How I respond to criticism or praise. Verse 5, he says, it is better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. A fool's laughter is quickly gone like thorns crackling in a fire. This also is meaningless. Like I said, Solomon is a bright guy. I mean, there is a lot of insight packed into Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 5. Better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. I mean, a, a person who is a learner, a person who is committed to growing, a person who is sober about their life is open to course corrections. I don't care if they're 82 or 12. This person is open to learning, is open to changing, is open to being criticized. All right? Um, a wise person wants to grow, wants to learn, wants to change. A fool just shuts down and looks only for pats on the back for attaboys. This is hard, but it's so important. I don't enjoy being criticized. I suspect none of us do enjoy being criticized, but I know there can be a lot that's constructive for me in the criticism of others. But here's the thing. Solomon is not saying that any kind of criticism is good, all right? Solomon is saying that to be criticized by someone who is what? Wise. That is a good thing. That is a useful thing. It is the criticism that comes from someone older, wiser, more mature, more insight, more experience. It is that criticism from that person that has value for me. Um, because a wise person knows, knows when to deliver some criticism. You know, probably not in front of 800 people, probably one-on-one. -on -one. A wise person knows how, you know, how to couch that criticism so that you're able to receive it. A wise person also knows with whom they can share criticism. A wise person knows better than to criticize a fool. 
knows that it will bounce off them like water off a duck's back. So a wise person is a person who delivers criticism at the right moment to the right person in the right way, and that is why it's good. Now, we live in a Facebook culture, all right? We live in a culture where we spend our days high-fiving each other in the virtual world, putting up the best pictures of our family, telling, telling about the funny thing our kids said the other day so everybody can get on and say how cute, showing off our new hairstyle, telling about how, how our husband has these quirky habits or whatever. And so we're all high-fiving ourselves in this virtual world, showing off our lives to each other. Um, Question is, and there's nothing wrong with Facebook necessarily, but the question is, do you have a wise person or two or three that you listen to, these people that feel the freedom to share with you words that you need to hear but don't always want to hear? Do you have those people in your life? And I'm blessed to have a several. Barbara, Barbara, you're one of them. I think Bob Chisholm is one of them. I married a wise person. Um, these people don't batter me with criticism 24 hours a day, but they do occasionally say, you know, I wouldn't have done that. Or I think you better think twice about that. And, and I really value the wise people that God has allowed me to have in, in my life. And their, their experience, their insight needs to be taken seriously. All right. There's another sobriety test that Solomon looks at, and, and this is essentially, he's going to look at the ways that you and I manage our lives. Um, life can get kind of out of control. Things can get kind of chaotic. Where, Solomon's going to ask, where do you turn to to try to influence, to try to manage your situation, right? And, and it's going to almost be like a little Solomonic Twitter feed here. He's going to throw multiple things out that may look a little disconnected, but really they're all connected under things I do to manage my life. Okay, so, so here goes. Let's get in the, the Twitter feed, verse 7. He says, extortion or bribes. Extortion turns wise people into fools. Bribes corrupt the heart, all right? Extortion, bribes, you may think, that has nothing to do with me. Well, it has a lot to do with us because it is essentially talking about attempts to take control. It, it, it is choosing the quick way to resolve a situation instead of choosing the right way. If we're honest, often when I do what's right, the outcome is less certain. You with me? I know that if I pull these strings over here in secret, I can make the outcome I want happen. If I do what's right, if I act as a person of integrity, if I treat other people fairly in this situation, I may not get what I want. And so extortion, bribes, or whatever other shortcut you take, end around that you take, skirting the, the, the slow way, the patient way, the right way, is a way that we try to take control of our of our lives and we it's a dangerous thing it's a dangerous thing all right it, we end up getting burned in the long run verse 8 finishing is better than starting patience is better than pride um this goes along with that last thing we talked about. We are proud. We feel like we need to get our way. We feel like our ideas are the best ideas. We are impatient, and we not only want our way, we want it right now. People um, manage their lives this way, making sure they get what they want, and they get it right away. And when the bill comes, it's costly. Winners in the short term, folks who manage to live their lives 
based on pride and impatience, winners in the short term end up burning bridges and end up losing out in the long run. A lot of folks then, a lot of folks when they don't get their way, it's a frustrating thing, right, when you don't get your way. And so a lot of folks who don't get their way, and by the way, even if you manipulate, even if you extort, even if you pay bribes, even if you take shortcuts, you may still not get things to work out the way you want. And what happens is folks who have to be in control, folks who have to manage every detail of their life when things don't work out right, they get mad. (laughs) So he says in verse 9, control your temper, for anger labels you as a fool. And then his next tweet should really get us thinking. Um, He says in verse 10, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise, he says. Um, Now, what does that have to do with managing life? What does that have to do with managing the details of what's going on around me? Um, Does it fit with these other tweets from Solomon, not to relish the good old days? He says that's not a good thing. How does that fit in? Well, what happens, especially as we get older, is we get to places, stopping points, let's say, where we want to kind of lock things in, right? Now I've got my family just the way I like it. Now I've got my business just the way I like it. Now, finally, the church is a place where I feel comfortable, where I feel good. Wherever it is, you can do this in any sphere of life. Solomon says, don't. Because again, it is simply closing down and saying, I don't need to learn anymore. I don't need to change anymore. Things are just the way I want them. And he says a truly wise and godly person never shuts down to change, never shuts down to learning, uh, never lives in the past, in the glory days. And it's really, in this text, a very subtle message, um, very easy to miss this, But essentially what we've seen up to this point in chapter 7 Ecclesiastes, we've essentially seen two ways of dealing with the mess. The mess in my family, the mess at my job, the mess in my world. We've seen essentially two ways. One way is to drug yourself, self-entertain, self-prescribe yourself parties, alcohol, drugs, whatever, to escape and to not think about the mess that your life is, that your world is, simply kind of escapism or or simply ignoring the reality. That's what some people do, and that's how he starts out the chapter. And he says a good anecdote to that is a funeral, which will wake you up and make you think about what life is really about. And the other way that people try to manage their mess is to take control of it and and, and to grab every situation and and manage it and strong arm it so that it turns out the way you like. So you can basically party hard and ignore the sickness and the violence and the misery around you or you can become the control freak. Um, Both of these are attempts to manage your world. Here's the thing. And you know this is true. The world is broken, (laughs) it is a mess, and you can't fix it. You can't fix it. You can't create a world where where your wife won't die from cancer. You can't 
create a world where I'm going to raise my kids properly and they will not make bad decisions. You can't create a world where it is impossible for you to lose your investments tomorrow as the stock market crashes or something or lose your job next week. We simply don't have that kind of ability to manage our world, and Solomon wants us not to fool ourselves into thinking we do have that ability. So he invites us to sober up. Come to terms with the fact that here under the sun, you and I are not able to manage things all that well. We aren't able to get everything to work out the way we want. And then he invites us to consider a third way. Remember the way of ignoring reality or drugging yourself. Then there's the way of super hyper-controlling. Then there's a third way. And this is where he wants to take us this morning, starting in verse 13. Solomon says, Accept the way God does things. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Solomon says, look, someone is in control. It's not you, it's not me. Someone is in control. It's God. Um... That's why even when things seem unmanageable, even when things seem to be spinning out of control, even when life is overwhelming, a person of faith can turn to God and find peace and find hope. Well, when we were in Brazil, I didn't hear about this till after the fact, but we were a lot of times there are these beggars and handicapped folks that, that don't have any way of making money or they're just they live in the slum or whatever and they're so they're begging at the stoplights and uh, Claudia saw this this poor guy who was crippled who was begging at a stoplight and uh, and he was what he was doing was he would and a lot of them do this they'll they'll kind of when the light turns red they'll go up and down the cars that are there stopped and they'll put something over your um, your your side view mirror and so he was putting some candy over all of the mirrors going down the cars and then they come back and collect it and either you give him money and you keep the candy or you or he just takes it okay so he has they usually put a note on there and and she was she she remembered the note that this fellow had on the candy that he put on our car. The note said, in Portuguese, of course, but the note said, um, it said, I'm not going to tell God how big my problems are. I'm going to tell my problems how big my God is. And Claudia was touched by that. She remembered that. And she said, Dad, that, that was really cool. And I think that's really the essence of what Solomon is saying in chapter 7. You may not be able to handle your problems. God can. You may think your problems are huge and insurmountable and your life out of control unless you look at how great and powerful and loving God is and then things somehow seem okay. With God and with a God-fueled life this morning, I know that a lot of us are at places where 
life has really thrown you a sucker punch or two. And, and a lot of us are at places where we feel like we just can't hang on anymore. And the last thing you need to do today, if you are a believer, if you're a person of faith, the last thing that you need to do is quit. There was a program on TV a while back devoted to the Ironman Triathlon World Championships. And if, if you don't know what they do in these things, you will, um, you'll swim in the ocean for two miles, then you, everybody rides bikes for over 100 miles, and then you finish off with a nice full marathon. Okay, So this program was about these crazy, extreme, dedicated athletes who do these Iron Man, Iron Woman triathlons. One of the people that they, that they kind of focused on was a woman named Lynn Brooks, and she was featured on the program because she was competing in her 19th Iron Man triathlon. Um, and, and so she was talking about how one year during the marathon leg, you know, the, the last and most grueling part of the competition, during the, the, the marathon leg of the competition, she left the race, she went into the aid tent, and she said that when she got in the aid tent, I mean, her body was aching, her emotions were drained, and she had this overwhelming desire just to stop. And she looked over, and she saw this fellow who had also been competing. And he had dropped out of the race. Now he was just resting and drinking a cold beer. And almost as if he could read her thoughts, he looked over at her and he said, all you have to do is drop out of the race like me. And she says, at that precise moment, she realized who that man was. She says, that man was the enemy. She said, um, she said um, it was the hardest. As she, she left the tent, she reentered the race. She said it was the hardest and most glorious day of her life. She realized, no, this is who I am. This is what I do. So stay in the race. God is alive. God is in control even when we are not. God is managing things even when things look out of control. God has set out the race for you to run, and He will be with you the whole way. Don't quit. And know this, if you're a believer through Jesus Christ, you have more than this naive hope that everything's going to turn out all right. You have a confident expectation that your Lord is working things out for His glory. You have a confident expectation that at the end of the race, you will be rewarded by the Lord, the God of the universe. Jesus, though, tells us the truth, right? doesn't sugarcoat things. He looks you and I in the eyes and he says this in, in John 16, He says, I have told you these things that in me you may have what? You may have peace. I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. In this race, you will want to quit. 
You will have an aching heart. You will feel drained, Jesus says. But take heart. I won the race for you. Take heart. It's temporary. You can finish, Jesus says. And you may think that your greatest problem is health-related. Some of us have some big health problems in our families. You may think that your biggest challenge is money-related. You may think that your biggest problem is with a rebellious child. Well, I've got news for you. Those things don't compare at all to our biggest problem, which is our problem with sin. Sin is the only thing life can throw at us that is truly fatal, that is permanently fatal. And the Bible says that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so, in a sense, it becomes very hopeless until Jesus shows up and says, I've taken care of your sin problem. On the cross, I paid the price. My blood covers you. You are completely forgiven. And now you can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. That's the message of the gospel. And the word that's at the middle of all of this is a word called grace. Grace is a powerful word. Grace, when you think about it, grace is a word that reminds me that I am not in control. Grace is a word that reminds me that when it comes to the biggest problem I have, the most important issue in my life, my struggle with sin, I am powerless I could not make that right. I could not manage it. I could not fix it. I could not cover it up. And grace reminds me that Jesus stepped in and Jesus, because of his righteousness, saved me when I couldn't save myself.